This is the Microsoft Libraries and Museums podcast, a show dedicated to exploring digital transformation with organizations from around the world. I'm Emily Kotecki. In season two, we are doing a deep dive into different aspects of digital transformation. Today, we're going to dive into cloud advocacy with Jen Looper, who is cloud advocate lead at Microsoft. Before Jen studied computer language, she received her PhD in medieval French literature. And while she may have jumped from French to JavaScript, she has always remained interested in supporting arts and culture through tech. We'll hear more about that experience in a little bit, but first, Jen, thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me. It's a great pleasure. Jen, let's start with what is a cloud advocate? Right. It's kind of a strange title, but when you think about it, it's coming out of the world of developer advocacy. So let me unpack that phrase a little bit. So we are advocates and we're the people who help. We are ideally right in the middle of sales and marketing and engineering so that within that triangle, we're kind of right in the middle. And we are the folks who talk to developers and who talk to DevOps people and designers even sometimes and just see how they're using our tooling as as Microsoft employees. You know, are you using a particular product? Are you in need of a particular product that I can recommend? Is there any way that our products are not doing what they're supposed to be doing? And is there a way we can help make them better for you? So we're all about helping the the developer just get better at their job without selling them anything. We're there basically to help. And you're kind of in between the client and the developer. Is that what you mean too? Yeah, we're in between actually more the developer and engineering. So our client is also internal. So we have, we're also talking to our own engineers and trying to get product feedback from these clients and send it back to engineering so that we can improve the product. So the idea is to have this nice feedback loop. So what sort of clients do you usually work with and how do they use cloud? So I'm on the academic team. We actually just um, moved completely into the student team. And our clients are very specifically students and faculty. And we take a sort of a large view of what a student is. I tend to think that anyone who's interested in learning something new is a learner, is a student, is someone who's new at something. Perhaps they're um, a designer who's trying to figure out some piece of software or um, a JavaScript developer who's all of a sudden needing to learn more about databases. So we're all about helping those kind of people just learn something new. Can you unpack that a little bit more? When you say learn something new, can you give me like an example of how an academic client, a student client would work with you? Yeah, I have an interesting example coming actually from museums and libraries. Um, we're recently contacted by some folks um, in that sector who would like to learn how to f- how to somehow scrape data from a PDF that they have a bunch of PDFs that are extracted from their library materials, how you would scrape that data and somehow process it as unstructured data into something more structured. So we have a bunch of PDFs. We need to use OCR. So this, you know, object recognition software. So I'm creating a demo. I'm working on it right now to figure out how to scrape data out of this PDF and put it in somewhere. Maybe it's going to be Cosmos DB, which is our one of our database solutions. Maybe it needs a middle tool to kind of structure the data before it goes to Cosmos DB. So we're trying to figure out, you know, what are the best ways that these kind of cloud products can help these sectors? So you mentioned that you have been working also with the libraries and museum sector and cloud advocacy might be new uh, or might be old for some listeners. So let's dive into the example you have with the Cooper Hewitt with I think which is such a cool name is Project Troubadour. So please let's start with, you know, why did they come to you? What were the goals of that project? 
Right. So I'm lucky to work with Catherine Devine, who is also involved in this podcast. And she actually came to me saying, you know, the Cooper Hewitt's been talking to me and asking for some help creating some kind of prototype. Can you help me um, develop this demo or, or at least talk to them and figure out what their needs are? So we worked for several months, you know, in weekly meetings, talking to folks at the Cooper Hewitt who are just amazing as partners. Uh, and so we were basically involved in creating an interesting prototype that's all about storytelling. So what they wanted is a way to be able to query uh, their API and also other museum APIs. For example, the, the Metropolitan Museum or the Victorian Albert or uh, other museums just get a whole bunch of APIs and be able to query them in a nice searchable fashion and grab pieces out of those collections and assemble them onto a web page one way or another. So that's the prototype that we built. And with that comes interesting metadata. You have the title of an object, its provenance, when it was created, it's the material used to create it. And all of that stuff we can kind of extract for a these APIs and pop them into Cosmos DB. And then on top of that, we put a cognitive search. We That was one of the first times I used cognitive search to kind of extract information out of this metadata and, and make suggestions because it's also a recommendation engine. So it said, oh, you're looking at a piece of lace from the Cooper Hewitt. It's made out of linen. Here's some more suggestions. Why don't you look at things made out of wool? Why don't you look at things made out of silk? And then, you know, you can kind of build your story by going down these interesting rabbit holes. So the whole idea is to see how far we could push Microsoft products in this direction, just to help a museum get a story kind of constructed and, and create a web asset out of that. And it would also be a tool that researchers could use as they're kind of curating either online or in-person ex expositions or exhibitions. What stage is this project in? The prototype is complete. I haven't done much to it since we passed it over to the user testing folks. The user testing is complete. And I think that we're processing that feedback and figuring out what next steps would be. I believe that this product will now be passed over to a vendor to who will start, you know, really making this production. That's hopefully the next phase. And it, ideally it would be a product that a lot of different museums would be able to use. I would love that. What were some of the challenges that came up in trying to implement a project like this? The problem of standardization mm -hmm. is a challenge and figuring out what needs to come out of all of this querying across different APIs. Do people really want to just create another web app? I feel like the, the future for this product is not the production of a web app, but maybe the production of just another API that everybody else can use. So it's kind of like this massive clearinghouse and then it'll produce this standardized structure of data that will be able to flow easily mm -hmm. into other people's apps. So maybe, you know, maybe the route I was going, which was, you know, yeah, you take all these images and you sift them out and then you create an interesting, like close looking web app. Maybe that's not the final goal. But I, I'm real curious to see what will happen. Another challenge was handling licensing of images. Mm. We were, were very concerned about, you know, yes, you can grab images and pop them into your, your data storage area, but shouldn't there be some kind of license check to make sure that you are allowed to do such things? So um, I'm, I think that we talked a little bit about working with Creative Commons licensing to make sure that all of these um, images have the, have the proper license to reuse. But this is, this is something that a lot of museums I think are going to be having to deal with is this question of licensing. And I know the Louvre just put all of their collection online, like recently. What everybody needs to get pretty good at understanding licenses and it's not easy. So. When you think about working with museums in the future, what are some of like the skills or resources that museums should consider 
either having or investing in or partnering with to create these type of cloud-based projects? It's a great question because from going to a couple of conferences and talking to folks in the field, I think that a lot of them have already invested in um, a lot of different management systems. Dealing with legacy systems, no matter what, is hard, but it's kind of like something to keep in mind as they're working with their own systems that they already have, how these things can be scaled and um, how they can interface with other, with other systems. You know, maybe, maybe these systems need to be tweaked a little bit so that we can expose an API so that then we can do other things and extend their functionality. I'm kind of learning as I go of what what's in the market, what people are using, but it's been really eye-opening and interesting. Is it something where when you build it, it then becomes easier to integrate those other systems? Or is it something where you can build it, you know, almost like a platform, like for one museum, and then it can be moved to other museums that also have similar functionalities that can plug into it? Yeah, I think the great dream was that it would be sort of a, a clearinghouse for museum APIs so that we would be able to easily integrate, you know, not just those APIs, but all sorts of different APIs. And then it becomes a real interesting architectural challenge because every museum API is slightly different, especially with image handling. I found a lot of challenges around that. They all have different ways and there's no standard way of handling images and how they're displayed on the web. And I think that the first thing that really needs to come out of this project and and understanding that we have is that we need to think about standardization. And I, I know that that's tricky. And a lot of museums have their own way of doing things. And that's the way that they're going to do things. But if there's a, a layer above that that can help towards standardization, I think that would be a really useful and helpful thing to create. So that's kind of the direction we were going. And I'm curious what will happen in the future. In addition to the systems that museums and libraries may need for this type of project, what are the type of skills that the people working in those organizations may need for a project like this. It's tricky to ask, you know, museum experts and curators who are so specialized and so excellent at what they do to all of a sudden flip and become coders, right? That's not really fair. So I feel like that's not what is going to be required that people all of a sudden dive in and start building websites. I think what's going to be required is understanding of architectures. So it's really like figuring out what do you want to do with these collections? How should the data be structured so that it can be maximally utilized and, and that other people can utilize all of these collections as well? What's the most flexible and scalable way that we can expose our collections to the world? We've been diving in deep and now I want to kind of inch our way back out thinking at a more macro level. What is an assumption that you think people make about cloud that you would like to clarify or demystify? I think it's poorly named, honestly. Like, it, what is this thing? It's just, it's complicated, it's inaccessible, and it's weird. And I think it takes a little bit of unpacking and, and reading of documentation to understand what's going on that, you know, it's just other people's servers and it can get expensive. So this is something that museums are going to have to be looking at, you know, the costs involved. And the idea of the cloud is that actually you can save yourself costs because this thing can scale up and then scale down automatically when it's not being used, as opposed to an on-premises server or on-premises database, which always has to be running no matter what. And it's not easy to, you know, scale it up and down or, or quickly scale in another server when you have a popular exposition, you know, and then, and then pull it back when you don't need that anymore. That's the beauty of the cloud, but it's a little hard think for people to to grasp and I think that there is this idea that oh this is going to be an expensive business and it's complicated 
But really the idea is that it's supposed to actually simplify and be, and be more affordable. So I think there's a marketing messaging that perhaps we're missing, <laughs> but I hope that you know, maybe we can clarify this a little bit. You know, save yourself some money and save yourself some um, decisions on architecture. And where do you feel like cloud advocacy, what you do fits into the ecosystem that is digital transformation? There's so many pieces to digital transformation. How do you feel like cloud fits into that? Yeah, I think that we can maybe help demystify some of these questions of, you know, what can you do for us today? You know, how can we help you ease your transformation, especially with, you know, the use that we can put to machine learning and AI, which which can run nicely in the cloud. It can be scaled up and scaled back. And it can be, I think, particularly useful for, for digital transformation and collections management. Things like looking at all kinds of data and machine learning is great for discovering patterns that you yourself might not, might not have seen. So it's just a question of if you can gather up your data and, and figure out how to feed it into the cloud, then we can save you a lot of time over the long run. And on such a large scale, right? Because oftentimes, whether you're a small museum or a large museum, you can have thousands of objects that will take years for humans, whether it's a single human, you know, your only curator or a team of curators to, to process and sift through to find those patterns. Yeah, I was recently contacted by a museum who is working with perfume bottles, a very small museum, but they have a really, really cool collection of different perfume bottles. And there's a really nice tool called Lobe AI, which um, is actually free for use. It's a desktop app, and you can at least prototype what machine learning could do for your collection. So you, so we were feeding it lots and lots of images of perfume bottles, and it was able to figure out, oh, you know, this might be this type, and this might be that type. So there's a, there's actually some low-code, no-code, and actually free-to-use tooling out there that small museums can leverage as well. So it's really a, a kind of a fun and uh, interesting way to leverage your collection. I want to begin to wrap up and shift a little bit to your your background is actually that you have a PhD in French literature. I don't know if, if listeners heard her say the Louvre much more eloquently than I did. So Jen, you retrained then as a web developer after getting your PhD. What have you taken from your knowledge and fluency of one of the Romance languages into your knowledge and fluency of computer language? So I always think about syntax as syntax, right? Whether we're teaching Old French or Middle English or, which is always really fun, or JavaScript. And for the first time, though, in really 20 years of being in the software industry, I'm actually able to use my PhD, which was in Old French medieval literature, and talk about it a little bit. So that's been a huge pleasure. But nobody speaks JavaScript. I mean, I hope not. And, and nobody speaks old French. So we were all coming to this as a question of, as a foreigner, trying to learn something new. It's just a question of figuring out how to leverage these languages to do what you want, you know, to build a website or a mobile app. With old French, it was always just a question of being able to read in the original, you know, some beautiful 12th or 13th century piece of literature, which, which is worth it. Um, Jen Looper, uh, Cloud Advocate Lead at Microsoft. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's a great pleasure. Always fun. At the end of every episode, we hear from Catherine Devine, Global Business Strategy Leader for Libraries and Museums at Microsoft. Catherine, what were some of the most interesting topics that stuck out to you from today's conversation? Thanks so much, Emily. I don't think I've ever heard French literature compared to JavaScript, but that was great. I love that analogy. So Jen's been a great advocate within Microsoft for the museums and libraries vertical and the work that we do. She's really, really leaned in on uh, working with museums and libraries, uh, sorting out these issues, thinking creatively 
And that's something that we can really bring um, and support the industry. So I hope that uh, our listeners today sort of take that message away that we're here to solve industry problems. We're here to find things that everybody needs and how can we help support that. But it also goes to show that you don't have to be a techie, so to speak, to work in computer science. And you know, Jen's been great with that, with you know a PhD in uh, French literature. That's quite something. So very impressive. Uh, she's an amazing colleague. She talked about another topic that I think is really important too, and that is standardization. One of the uh, concerns that you know, many museums have is, you know, we're all snowflakes. We all need to be slightly different because we have slightly different needs. But standardizing computer platforms means scalability, means access, and it means it faster. And, uh, and as, as Jen mentioned, even if we're just standardizing at that top layer and not at the bottom layer, um, that's, a, that's progress. But the more that we can standardize, the overall reduction in cost and investment in technology, and we realize those benefits. So another great conversation, Emily. Looking forward to next week as well. Thank you again to Catherine and Jen. A new episode of the Microsoft Libraries and Museums podcast will be released every Monday. But make sure to subscribe at wherever you get your podcasts so that you never miss an episode. We also include a link to the full interview transcript in the show description. Until next time, I'm Emily Kotecki. Thanks for listening.